This morning we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, I'll begin reading with verses 7 through 9 and then skip down to verses 23 through 29. Please give your attention to God's word. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Please be seated. As most of us have, having either been raised during the civil rights era or just after the civil rights era, and due to the fact that we live here in central Pennsylvania, it's easy to think that racism is largely a thing of the past, something that we in our enlightened society have gotten beyond. But unfortunately, in recent months, we've had a couple of painful reminders that we have not progressed against the evil of racism nearly to the degree that maybe we thought we did. With the shooting of Trayvon Martin in Florida and the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, it's been kind of like a big bucket of cold water in our face to wake us up to the reality that there are still a lot of hurting people out there, still a lot of anger on both sides of the issue, or many sides of the issue. And as I've listened to that debate going on in print and in media, it's been discouraging that people seem so hopeless and helpless as to how to really fix the problem. I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania, which is sometimes called Upper Appalachia. And the reason it's called Upper Appalachia is partly geographical, because it's the upper regions of the Appalachian mountain chain, and so it's geographically correct to call that area Upper Appalachia. But we all know that the other reason that it's called Upper Appalachia is because it, it's kind of like culture that we know from lower Appalachia. It's kind of a redneck culture up in that part of Pennsylvania. And that's what I grew up in the midst of. And many of the people, family members, friends, if you were to listen to them, and I think back on those days, they sounded like racists, and some of them were. But I also know that part of what was called racism, or what would have sounded like racism to us, was partly a lack of exposure. Lack of exposure to people of other races, of other ethnicities, other nationalities. My area was what you would call monocultural instead of multicultural. 
For example, I, didn't, I did not personally know an Asian person or an African-American person until I went to college. We just weren't exposed to other cultures. Not only were we not exposed to other ethnicities or races, we were not even exposed to other socioeconomic cultures, really, because almost everybody in my hometown was either upper lower class or lower middle class. And we, there just weren't very many, very many observable differences among us. We were monocultural. And what that illustrates to me, and something that's been a good lesson for me, is that sometimes what we call racism or what we feel guilt about as racism is really just being uncomfortable with people that are different than we are. And that's not necessarily sinful, that's just reality. You know, I, I used to, sometimes when I lived in the suburbs of Philly, in kind of a monocultural section of the suburbs of Philly, I would sometimes have occasion to go into South Philly. And if you've ever been to South Philly, it's kind of an experience because they all look like me in South Philly, mostly, but it's a very different culture there. And I remember that first time I went into South Philly and kind of walked around the streets, that I felt out of place, I felt fearful because everything was uncomfortable to me, the way people interacted with each other, the way they talked, their accent. And so it's just a fear of the unknown. But that's not to say that racism isn't a very serious problem, even in monocultural areas like where I grew up. When my wife Suzanne and I moved to the suburbs of Philadelphia, we had four kids at that time, and we made a very conscious choice to expose our kids to other kids from other cultures. We had a choice of two Christian schools. If you know the Philly area, the western suburbs, there's two really good, prominent Christian schools. One of them is up near the main line, where all the wealthy people live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. The other is down on just very near Chester, Pennsylvania. If you know Chester, Pennsylvania, that's one of the poorest cities or suburbs of a city in the country. And so obviously the culture and nature of those two schools was very different and we had to decide which one we were going to put our kids in. And we consciously chose to put our kids in the school near Chester because we wanted them to have what we didn't have growing up, which is exposure to other cultures. And so it kind of reminds me of a funny story. My seven-year-old daughter at the time, uh, she was, uh, she, if you know my oldest daughter, she has blazing red hair. And um, she was invited by one of her uh, black uh, friends to go to her church's VBS one summer. And we were actually a little fearful about that because she was kind of new to all this. We wasn't sure how she would react as we expected that she would be the one white face in a mass sea of dark skin. We were just worried about how she might respond to that or how others might respond to her. Well, it just so happens the day before she was supposed to start VVS, she stayed out in the sun too long and developed a pretty serious sunburn. And then for unknown reasons to us, she got up the first day of VVS and put on a bright red dress. And <laughs> she has better sense now as a redhead about what to, colors to wear. But she wore this bright red dress and we took her down to VVS and she walks into this, this massive group of, of African-American children and Pretty soon, one of the little girls about her age come walking over to her, and she had a perplexed look on her face, and kind of actually at the time I interpreted it, you know, maybe it was an angry look. She looked my daughter up and down and skeptically and braced myself for what reaction she might give, and she just said to my daughter, could you be any more red? <laughs> we were worried about her whiteness. It was really her redness that she had to deal with that day. But what that reminds me of is that that 
Christian school where our kids, where, where we raised our kids mostly, was really the most colorblind place I've ever known on earth. It was about two-thirds white and Asian and about one-third African-American in the student population. And I just loved walking the halls and watching the kids interact with each other. It wasn't perfect. There were moments where you'd see the world's perspective creep into the relationship. But largely, it was a culturally, it was a, it was a racially blind school and environment, a wonderful place to raise our kids. Part of that was because, as I said, they were exposed to these other cultures, interacted with these other cultures every day. But the bigger reason was because that school was built on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it was colorblind, really, the ultimate reason. And that is the solution to all the things that divide us in this culture. And there are so many things that divide us. In verse 28 that we read a moment ago, Paul describes the church as a new humanity. A humanity that stands apart radically from the culture around it. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that there Paul lists all the big prejudices, prejudices of his day. Ethnic background, Jew or Greek, social class, slave or free, and gender, male or female. And when you think about those differences, ethnicity, social class, gender, they're so superficial, aren't they? But yet, we spend our time measuring ourselves against one another based on how we fit into categories like that. Nothing ever changes. Isn't it true that throughout history, the most mistreated people in our cultures have either been the foreigners or the poor or women. An awful lot of social unrest, even wars, can be attributed to those divisions among people of the world. Isn't that really the key issue? It's our identity. Who are we? And what a shame that we would define who we are by such superficial things like ethnicity. The key issue that the world teaches us to be asking ourselves every day that we live in this world is, are you superior or are you inferior? Are you superior or are you inferior? And how do we make that determination? Well, we look at these kinds of distinctions among ourselves. You remember how we started this study? We're doing a series of study on what biblical fellowship in the church looks like. And you remember how we started this study? That at the root of it, at the very core of it, what it is that unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ is the fact that we are in Christ. That's our identity. That's who we are. He is in us, we are in him, and therefore we belong to one another. That is the source of our identity. So in light of that, how do we develop a fellowship that is free of the kind of distinctions that the world wants to impose upon us? How do we live out that identity of being one in Christ, as Paul describes it here in Galatians 3? Well, we must do what Paul does. This entire chapter, Paul makes an argument about 
the implications of our identity of being in Christ by grace. In order for us to have a fellowship without worldly distinctions, then we must have a fellowship that is based upon God's acceptance of us. What is the basis of his acceptance of us? How do we become children of God? Because there is a difference. There's only one real difference between people on this planet. It's those who belong to God, who are children of God, and those who aren't. Don't believe those that are out there saying everybody's children of God because that's not the scriptural perspective. The scriptures teach us there's two kinds of people. There are people who are children of God and people who aren't. And so the key question, when you're talking about that kind of a distinction, it is, on what basis does God accept those who are called his children then? And that's really Paul's argument here in Galatians 3. Understand that historically speaking, what Paul is dealing with is some false teaching that had crept into the churches in Galatia. Galatia is modern-day Turkey. And in that area, it was largely what we call Gentiles, not Jews. But there were a lot of Jews there as well that had been scattered there by the Roman oppression and persecution. And so the churches were largely Gentile, but there was a pretty significant Jewish population there. And what had happened is that false teachers had crept into these churches, and these false teachers preaching a false gospel tried to tell these Christians who had put their faith in Christ to say that faith in Christ is not enough. They were called Judaizers because what they were trying to do was to impose obligations of first century Judaism, not Old Testament Judaism, but first century Judaism, which basically said the way to be right with God, the way to be a child of God, is to be either born Jewish and keep the law, or to become Jewish through becoming a proselyte and becoming Jewish in all of your practices. That was the only way to become a child of God. Well, that's what the Jews of the first century taught, not the Christians, but that's what the Jews taught. Well, these Judaizers tried to mix that with faith in Christ, and they were trying to lead the churches in Galatia astray. And so Paul writes the entire letter to Galatians against the Judaizers, and he's making an argument for the gospel. And I want to look at his argument here because it's crucial to understanding how we live within our fellowship without distinctions. Notice what Paul does as he goes right to Abraham. Because that's a crucial issue for between the Jews and Christians and a crucial issue between Judaizers and Christians. Who has the right to call themselves children of Abraham? Isn't it interesting that that is still such a hugely relevant question in the world today? The three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all come back down to that one question, don't they? Who has the right to call themselves children of Abraham? All three major religions claim him. And right here in Galatians, Paul's settling the question. I don't know why we've been arguing about it for 2,000 years. Paul settled it by God's direction here in Galatians 3. He says in verse 6, verse 6, he's quoting. He's quoting Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And Paul says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the answer right there. Abraham was accepted as a child of God because he believed God's promise, and because he believed God's promise, God credited that to him as righteousness. You see, you've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand who God is. God is our creator. God is all-powerful. He's the one true God. We are made in his image, and we are sinners. We have all sinned over and over and over again. And God is a holy God who must punish sin. He hates sin. He's a just God. 
and he must punish sin. And so how does anybody get reconciled to God? How do you get out from under his wrath and judgment, let alone how do you become his child, part of his family? Well, right here with, with Abraham, Paul says, look at Abraham. He believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. He gave him an account of righteousness as a gift because he believed God's promise. God promises, God, you know, it says there, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham and said, in you all nations are going to be blessed. He pointed to that seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That one day a great deliverer would come who would somehow deliver us from sin and death and God's wrath and judgment. And Abraham believed, and because he believed the promise, God considered him as though he had never sinned and as though he had always done what was righteous in word, thought, and deed. That's amazing. That's how a person gets right with God. That's how a person gets adopted by God. You know, it's interesting, Paul elaborates on this point over in Romans 4. He's basically making the same point in the book of Romans. Let me read the beginning of chapter 4. He says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He's talking to Jews, of course. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And again, he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And then down in verse 9, he picks up his argument. He says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And what Paul is introducing there is an argument that he'll pick up on here in Galatians 2. Is that when, he's asking the Jew, he's asking the Judaizer, he's asking... When did God accept Abraham as his son? He's saying it was before he was circumcised. So how can the Judaizer or the Jew say you have to be circumcised to be right with God? Because Abraham was right by faith with God before he was circumcised. Here in Galatians, he'll make the point that Abraham was made right with God by faith 430 years before the law was given through Moses. So how can you say that Abraham is right with God because he keeps the law? Abraham was an absolute pagan when God chose him. He was from the land of Ur, that land of Chaldea, the land of Babylon. Ultimately, that's where he came from. And God chose him. And he gave him this promise, and Abraham believed. And because Abraham believed in his promise, God gave him the gift of righteousness and therefore a right relationship with God and therefore adopted him as his son. You see, the faith that we're talking about is not just some statement of a creed somewhere. This is a life-changing faith that Abraham experienced. That's the kind of faith that God gives us. It's a faith that changes you because it's where you depend. It's where you put your hope. That's your faith. There's interesting, we talk about Abraham as being an obedient person. And the writer of Hebrews actually alludes to the obedience of Abraham, and he says you're probably the ultimate act of obedience that you can think of in the life of Abraham is when he was willing to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice when God told him to do it. Isaac, the one through whom all the promises given to Abraham were supposed to be fulfilled. If Isaac was taken out of the picture, then there could be no Messiah because the Messiah was to come through Isaac. 
And so, you know, it's amazing that Abraham was willing to do that, but you get an insight. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 gives you an insight into the faith of Abraham because he says, he gives you what was going on in the mind. Only through the writer of Hebrews do you know what was going on in the mind of, of, uh, of Abraham as he ascended Mount Moriah to make that sacrifice. Let me read to you uh, from chapter 11 of Hebrews how it describes Abraham's motivation. It says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, this was Abraham's thing. He's thinking, God is faithful. God is true to his promise. He said that he will send a deliverer, that this deliverer would come through Isaac. And so if God asked me to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, that means God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. Because God will not fail to fulfill his promise. That's what faith looks like. Faith says God is true to his word. God says he's going to send a deliverer to deliver me from sin and death. He's going to do it. That's faith. That's the kind of faith that changes your life. The way you live every day. I'm not going to base it on the promises of this world. I'm not going to base it on my own efforts. I'm going to base it on the fact that God is true to what he said he would do. He will fulfill his promise. And so Paul, pointing to Abraham, said, Abraham was reconciled to God, was made righteous in the sight of God, was made a child of God by faith before he had ever done anything for God. And that's how we become children of God as well. By faith. That's the whole point of Galatians 3. And so he says in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 26, In Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 29, And you are Christ, then you are, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What he's saying is, your, anybody's connection to Abraham, the only people who have a legitimate right to say, I am a child of Abraham and therefore a child of God, are those who have the faith of Abraham. The faith that God is true to his covenant promise to deliver us from sin and death. Remember, Jesus had to make this distinction with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of like the Judaizers. They were kind of an earlier version of the Judaizers. Basically saying, well, in order to be right with God, in order to be a child of God, in order to be a child of Abraham, then you need to be circumcised and keep the law, and then God will be pleased with you and you'll be his child. And so, remember in John chapter 8, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees? He said, you are not children of Abraham. And they were incensed. Their whole identity was that they had been faithful children of Abraham because they were born Jews and because they kept the law. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. You're not children of Abraham. And they were furious, murderously furious at Jesus for saying that. But you remember what Jesus said in response? He said, basically, if you, really, if you, are, if you were truly, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. You would have believed in me. You would have listened to me. He says, literally, he says, you would love me. And then he goes on to say in verse 60, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's what it means to be a child of Abraham. Put your faith in God's promise. Not just any promise. His promise of a deliverer who would provide an alien righteousness as a gift for you, as a means of reconciling you to God and making you part of God's family. Well, if that is what it means to be a child of Abraham, and I'm sorry, if you're Muslim, you're wrong. 
You are not a child of Abraham because you do not have faith in the risen Son of God. If you're a Jew who rejects Christ as the Messiah, you are not a son of Abraham and you are not a son of God. It is only through Christ and what he has done for us. That has huge implications, though, for those of us who believe. Because that's the only basis for acceptance. Believing in Christ is the only basis for acceptance. That's radical in light of all these distinctions that the world tries to impose upon us. Because the gospel is true, God accepts us by grace through faith, and therefore we must accept one another. We must. Outside of Christ, people base their identity either in what they're born with, things like their ethnicity or their appearance or their personality, or they base their identity in what they've done, whether it be education or a career or religion or dieting or working out, hobbies, whatever it might be, that's where they form their identity, either in what they were born with or what they do. Our identity is in Christ. And that makes a huge difference, and it's the only answer for the things that divide sinners. It's the only answer. Christ removes what Paul elsewhere calls the walls of hostility between us. And he lists them out here. Again, going back to verse 28. In Christ, our ethnicity does not divide us. In Christ, our ethnicity does not divide us. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Interesting to me that Paul never expected Jews to give up their Jewishness when they came to Christ. Even some of the traditions that either were unimportant or that were foreshadowing the work of Christ that were now fulfilled in Christ were no longer obligatory for the, the church. He even kept many of those practices. It's kind of odd in the book of Acts, isn't it? That he still acts like a Jew in so many ways when he didn't have to. He didn't give up the cultural things. He didn't ask the Jews to give up their culture and their tradition and the, the things that they loved that were not sinful in order to come to Christ. In the church, we bring together all of our ethnic backgrounds to create this tapestry of a culture in the church where we celebrate things that are good and true and right that are about our traditions and our cultures. I've, the Lord's given me opportunity within the last 10 years. I never did much world traveling, did almost no world traveling before 10 years ago. But within a very short period of time, I made a visit to Turkey and to Mexico and to Ukraine. Three very different places. Three places with very different cultures. And here I was a newbie world traveler just reacting to my northwestern Pennsylvania culture in the midst of those cultures. And you know, I learned a lot. Have you ever been through that experience? You know you learn a lot. You learn that your culture has a lot of blind spots. Things that are wrong with your culture that you didn't realize until you started comparing it to other cultures. And that there are things about other cultures that are wonderful that, that your culture doesn't have. That there's a beauty in the diversity in which God is allowed to develop around the world. Matter of fact, one of the things I learned in Turkey is that we are very task-oriented. I don't think of myself as a task-oriented person, but I live in a Western culture where we measure everything by what we get done on our to-do list. They're not like that in Turkey. You go to try to buy a $10 souvenir at one of the shops in Istanbul, they'll serve you tea and expect you to sit down and talk about your upbringing and your background and your religion and 
have a half-hour conversation, and then they'll get around to bartering about the souvenir. That's unthinkable to us. I mean, we're, you know, hunt. You know, you're in the mall to grab what you need and get out in five minutes, but that's not the way they think because we value task over relationship. They value relationship over task. That's a beautiful thing. That's something we should learn. We should slow down and relate more to one another. Stop worrying so much about our to-do list, the unimportant things. But that's why we're to learn from other cultures and to affirm what is beautiful and that is in the image of God. And it's a, a reflection of the truth and the beauty of God. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that sink in a moment. Our, all of us, no matter where you're from, our citizenship is in heaven. Sometimes Christians will come from other churches into churches like ours and they'll say, why don't you have a flag up front? Why don't you have an American flag up there? So many churches do. It's not that we're anti-American. It's not that we're unthankful for what this country has provided for us, particularly in our freedoms. But it's because our citizenship is in heaven. I had my congregation in Philly, we, at one point we had an influx of South Africans to a point where almost 40% of our congregation for a very brief period of time was made up of South Africans. And right before that, I had had to fight with some of the leadership about the fact that some of the, especially the, the, the war vets, insisted on having an American flag up front. I said, what does that say to our South African brothers who come to worship in the sanctuary? We are citizens of heaven, and we're waiting for our Savior from there. In Romans 10, verse 12, it says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. The riches of the family of God, the heir, the inheritance of the family of God belongs to all who call upon him by faith. Secondly, Paul says, Socio socioeconomic class does not divide us. Socioeconomic class does not divide us because we are in Christ. There is neither slave nor free. He just picks out that one big issue in the first century. Slavery was huge in the Roman Empire. It was everywhere. And the church had to deal with it on a, a degree that we've never even had to think about. And so the question is, you know, what, what do we do? If I'm a slave, what, what am I supposed to do? If I'm a slave owner, what am I supposed to do? Well, Paul's response to that was interesting. You know, just to give you an idea of what it was like, this was, this was the, the Greek mindset or the Roman mindset. Aristotle. The respected philosopher Aristotle called slaves animated implements. Living tools is what he called them. They had no rights. They were considered property. But Paul, let me read to you a section from Paul as he addressed the issue of slave, slavery to slaves. This is what he says, beginning in verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Called to Christ, he's talking about. Were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he was called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. What he's saying is, he, he, didn't, he didn't call for some big riot and social uprising and all the slaves to walk out. He, that wasn't the main issue. The main issue is that they understand their identity in Christ. He says, if you're a slave, you're already free in Christ. 
no matter what station you are in. You're already free in Christ. And if you're a slave owner, you're a slave of Christ. You see what he's saying? In Christ, there's no difference. There's no partiality, he says elsewhere. You're the same in the eyes of God. So don't get all too worked up about what calling you're in at the moment. If you get a chance to be free, then you should be free. It's what he says. Actually, the, the example of Philemon is such a great example. Philemon was a letter that Paul wrote to a slave owner. It's because he had found one of his runaway slaves. One of his runaway slaves came to Rome where Paul was, and Paul led him to Christ and then discipled him and then sent him back to his slave owner, Philemon. And that letter, read that letter this afternoon. What a wonderful way of dealing with a social ill from a gentle, gospel-oriented perspective, what Paul does in that situation. Listen to what he says to Philemon, the slave owner, in verses 15 and 16. He says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. He's saying to Philemon, You're the slave of Christ, and he's a freedman, and, you know, because of what Christ has done for him. You are the same in God's eyes, except another brother. He was bought with a price just like you were bought with a price. Neither one of you should be slaves. Paul expected that a mature Christian would recognize that owning a slave is inconsistent with the gospel. It's inconsistent with our identity as all being in Christ. And it's no accident that every time slavery has been prevalent in any society, whether you're talking about Roman society or American society, it's always been Christians proclaiming the gospel that have been at the forefront of the fight against slavery because we're the ones who have the philosophy and the religious perspective, the worldview that gives the justification for doing away with slavery and every other social distinction, every other class distinction. Slavery isn't that common, praise God, in our culture anymore, but we still have social divisions among us. Income level. So many of the cultural differences between us aren't so much black and white or whatever. It's really income level, isn't it? Poor and middle class and wealthy. Education level. I know you face this on the Penn State campus all the time. You measure your worth by the, the, the letters that come after your name. Those distinctions don't mean anything when it comes to being a child of God. When you think of the things that divide us, blue-collar, white-collar, single, married, children, no children, attractive, unattractive, cool, uncool, all these social distinctions, they dissipate into nothingness in the church of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the last category that Paul uses. He says that because of the gospel, in Christ, gender doesn't separate us either. What a shame that I hear people out there today all the time trying to base their identity in their, in their gender or their conception of their gender. In the church, our identity is in Christ. Gender is a temporary distinction that doesn't go to the essence of who we are at all. Women in Paul's day were universally seen as inferior to men by both Gentile culture as well as Jewish culture. Jewish men would pray to the Lord and say, Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, and thank you that I'm not a woman, if there was a man, of course. In so many of world cultures, it's been against the law to educate women. That has no business in the kingdom of God. It's interesting that Paul is seen as a male chauvinist by today's American culture, because in his own day, he was a feminist. 
Paul taught clearly that men and women are equal in the sight of God, that we are equally children of God, that we have equal access to the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is no difference between us. That's what he's saying here. He taught alongside of Priscilla. He taught women anywhere that they wanted to be taught. He treated women as spiritually equal to himself. Now, I know you're going to wonder, what do I believe about women's roles in the home and the church? Well, Paul had pretty strong feelings about that, too. And Paul didn't contradict himself when in the one case he says there's no, no male or female, but in the other case he says, That's, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. Paul's not contradicting himself because he's talking about us being the same in essence between men and women and yet a distinction that God gives between our roles that he asks us to play. He did the same thing with his own son. God the Son was equal in essence and glory to the Father and the Spirit. But clearly the Bible says that in doing the work of salvation, in the work of all history, God the Father is over the God the Son, and God the Son does the will of God the Father, and the Spirit does the will of the Spirit, the Spirit does the will of the Son and the will of the Father. There's a hierarchy, there's a distinction in roles to do the work, but still in their essence they're equal, and it's the same way between men and women. We're equal. There's no preference, there's no superiority, inferiority. He just asks us to do different jobs. We operate that way. You own a business, you're going to have people that are over other people because that's the efficient way to get work done. It's about doing the work. It's not about who you are. Bottom line, in Christ, because that's our identity, because that's who we are and that's what unites us, there is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Greek. Those worldly distinctions are meaningless when it comes to our status before God and before each other. And the plain truth of it is that God loves variety. Look around at his creation. He loves variety. He created black people and white people and Asian and Indian, and he created all these people because he loves variety, just like he loves all the flowers of the field. And we're all equally in his image. And he loves variety in the church. We've been studying the book of Revelation in our adult Sunday school class. Book of Revelation loves to point out the fact that in the kingdom of God, in its perfect state, we're from all nations, all races, all tribes, all tongues. God rejoices that he calls people from all cultures, and he wants all that is good about those cultures to be brought into the kingdom with us. And lest anybody misunderstand that when we say that you are to bring your culture and your differences into the church, that doesn't mean sin. That doesn't mean heresy or false gospels. God hates those things. And we'll talk next week about church discipline and how we protect the church against sin taking hold and false teaching taking hold. Yes, there is a time where we have to say, you're not welcome here because you're in unrepentant sin. You're rejoicing and celebrating your sin instead of repenting of it. Or you're teaching a false gospel and leading people astray and believing a false gospel. But when I'm talking about culture, I'm talking about things that are good things that reflect the word of God, that reflect the image of God. We bring these together and create this wonderful tapestry of all the different cultures that make up the church of Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful thing, especially when we really love one another and accept one another as children of God. These distinctions don't divide us at all. I was at a church planters conference in Florida last week, and the last speaker in the conference was Randy Neighbors. If you don't know Randy Neighbors, look him up online. He's written some books. He's done a lot of speaking. 
he started a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee called New City Fellowship, and it's one of the best examples of cross-cultural Christian ministries that you're going to find on the planet. Wonderfully diverse. But he said a lot of things in his talking about cross-cultural ministry that was very challenging. One quote I want to give you, he said, monocultural churches, monocultural churches are only sinful if it's a result of the church not welcoming other cultures. That was a quote from him, and it was really convicting to me because I grew up in a monocultural area. So in my little town in northwestern Pennsylvania, it was not necessarily a criticism of our church to say that we didn't have any black people or Asian people or Indian people because there weren't any in the community. We'd have to truck them in from Pittsburgh or something if we wanted to have people from other ethnicities. But in State College, you only have to go 10 feet from the church building to find people of many different ethnicities. And so I go back to what Randy Neighbors said. It's not monocultural mono churches, in other words, where everybody in here looks alike, same color of skin, same socioeconomic level, same, same uh, many of those superficial samenesses. Um, he says, monocultural churches are only sinful if it is a result of the church not welcoming other cultures. So I think the implication for us is clear. We better be welcoming to other cultures. We need to be willing to give up cultural comfort in order to welcome people with cultures that are different than ours. That's where it starts to hurt a little when you think about what that means. What are things that aren't essential to the gospel, essential to biblical teaching, that are cultural differences among us, that we just like being around people like us? We like being, being around people who think like us, who worship like us, who express themselves like us. We've got to be willing to give that comfort up for the sake of the gospel, to be welcoming to cultures that are different in those non-essential areas. That's hard. I mean, we, we're only a decade or so removed from the worship wars where we couldn't get people who like contemporary music to worship with people who like traditional music. And now we're talking about giving up things that are even more uncomfortable for us. We're hoping to have a new campus pastor here for RUF International who's going to work with international students, who's going to work in conjunction with our church on the campus. He's going to be inviting international people to this church clock is ticking to get prepared to set aside your cultural comforts to be welcoming to these people from other cultures because they need the gospel and we have the gospel we are the children of Abraham and children of Abraham are children of God and it's by faith and cultural distinctions are no barrier Paul says 1 Corinthians 9 verses 22 and 23 he says I have become all things to all people and this is what he's talking about cultural comforts here when he's saying this I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. There's great joy once you get past the pain of sacrificing your cultural comforts for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, make this a cross-cultural church, we pray. We thank you for the degree to which it already is. But Lord, we pray that more and more we would look like the broader kingdom of God that will gather around the throne of Christ in heaven. And Father, may this church be used to reach many people because we understand who we are in Christ 
and our ministry and our lives themselves are built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.